If you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in Luke chapter 1, and uh, we are talking about uh, a gift that's given to Mary, this, this Christmas announcement, uh, the Annunciation is what the church has called it through the years, and it's when Gabriel comes and announces to Mary that her life is about to be radically changed. And the mood of the whole passage always kind of reminds me of one of my very favorite Christmas movies of all time, um, and that is National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. So Chevy Chase is Clark Griswold. Beverly D'Angelo plays his wife, Ellen. And uh, the, the movie, Clark, you know, he, he, he plans for, he announces this, this good old-fashioned family Christmas. All both sets of grandparents are coming in, and along with Aunt Bethany and Uncle Lewis, and uh, then the surprise guest of his cousin, Catherine, and, and of course, there's Uncle Eddie. Randy Quaid's character says to Griswold, you know, are you surprised that I'm here? And he says, surprised, Eddie? If I woke up tomorrow with my head sewn to the carpet, I wouldn't be more surprised than I am now. You know how the movie begins? Takes his family, you know, they're loaded up in the station wagon. They go out to the, to the wilderness, to the tree farm. They march through the snow. They've forgotten the saw. They wrestle with the Christmas tree. All of this in preparation, the purpose of creating this perfect day in the middle of an imperfect year. And then the pinnacle scene, you know, you've got the, uh, the, the, the Norman Rockwell scene where they're all gathered around for the Christmas dinner and Cousin Catherine's cooked the bird too long. Looks beautiful, but when you cut into it, it's just nothing but air. Well, after the green jello seasoned with cat food, no one's enjoying the meal. Everything falls apart. It escalates quickly. All the guests pack up. They're getting ready to leave, and Clark meets him at the door, and he says, where do you think you're going? Nobody's leaving. Nobody's walking out on this fun old-fashioned Christmas. No, no, we're all in this together. It's a full-blown, four-alarm holiday emergency, and we're going to press on, and we're going to have the hap-happiest Christmas since Ben Crosby tap danced with Danny Kay. His wife looks at him and says, don't you think we ought to end this before it gets worse? And he said, worse? How could it get any worse? Look around you. The power of the scene it's the contrast of this polished perfection in a holiday table and the anguish in the hearts of everybody around it. And I don't mean that all Christmas dinners are like that, but you know what I mean. Things don't work out the way that we want them to. At the heart of human life lies the incapacity to make things turn out right. We don't have that power. And that's what really this annunciation is about. This, this scene here, there, uh, that the Dillinghams read for us in the sixth 
month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. And all of a sudden, you're wondering, what in the world is going on? Nazareth's a nowhere place full of nobodies. In fact, you, you don't even find Nazareth listed in the Old Testament, and the Old Testament seems to name every obscure town there is. This is where the angel is sent. See, angels, they're mysterious. The Bible, it only gives us a few glimpses of the angels. But what we can say for sure is we know, listen, angel means messenger, specifically God's messenger. They arrive directly from the presence of undiluted power. One writer said it this way, angels descend from the seat of cosmic majesty into the dust and ashes of our dying world. And they bring news from another place, another sphere altogether. And they come into the kingdoms of this world from the kingdom of our God. His name's Gabriel. You know, the last time we saw Gabriel in the Bible was over 500 years before this. It's only two angels named in all the Bible. You go back to Daniel chapter 10, you have Gabriel, you have Michael. Gabriel is sent from God to Daniel with a message, and he gets delayed 21 days because he gets into a street fight with three demons that have been assigned to the prince of Persia. Michael, another angel, comes in to his aid, you know, Uh, finishes the problem there, and then Gabriel, you know, rushes to to Daniel's presence. Almost the text seems out of breath. And the revelation that he had to get to Daniel was about the coming of the Messiah. And here, over 500 years later, he sent on the same errand from God to Nazareth to a woman named Mary. In fact, even in our culture today, we wouldn't call her a woman. She'd be over in the other building on the third floor with the youth group. Maybe finishing up eighth grade and ready to go into high school next year. That's who we're talking about. And this angel comes from the presence of God to announce that God is about to show up in the midst of human history in a way that he never has before. And he's going to do that through her. Don't Miss the scene. From God to Nazareth. It's a real place. From one real place to another real place. It's very concrete. The, the geography in Luke chapter 1 and 2, I mean, you could draw a map from the geography that Luke gives you. But be sure of this it's a mystery, it's not mythology. He doesn't come from Asgard or Olympia or Neverland. It's from heaven to earth. 
from God to Nazareth. It's supernatural. And the announcement is about a baby that will be conceived and born into this world. And as C.S. Lewis says, the baby's bigger than the whole world. It's come to Mary, this teenage girl. The passage before this tells us about her Aunt Elizabeth, who's old in age and past the, the childbearing years. She's, she's barren, married to a priest named Zechariah, and Elizabeth has a miraculous birth. One all the people will celebrate. Mary's announcement is of quite different nature. One filled with scandal, a burden, if you will, You know, she was probably a poor child born into a poor community and had never hardly traveled more than a few miles from her home. And it's a day like every other day of her life before. And in the middle of nowhere, the angel shows up in an obscure place and Find in John's gospel, Nathaniel, you know, he, he lets us know it's, it's a shady place. I mean, how could anything good come from Nazareth? To a peasant girl in the middle of nowhere, likely never read any scripture for herself, but would have heard about God all her life. And he comes to her, greetings, O favored one, in verse 28, the the Lord is with you. But she's greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting it might be. I mean, literally, the angel shows up and goes, howdy, Mary. Greetings from God. The angel said, don't be afraid. For you have favor, you found favor with God, and behold, you'll conceive in your womb and bear a son. You'll call his name Jesus, and he'll be great. And he'll be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him, uh, will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. It's a kingdom announcement with this kingdom perspective and and there are these five things he says about Mary's son he'll be great be called the son of the most high he'll be given the throne of his father David he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever and he will do that and there will be no end see what happens is the angel he's drawing upon an old promise well old to us Drawing upon the promise that God made, the unending, unconditional promise that God made to King David, one of the favorite heroes of the Old Testament. A man whose life was filled with highs and lows. And at the end of his life, one of the saddest or most pathetic scenes of all the uh, the end-of-life stories, one writer coined it as, a, as, a, as pathetic as his life is titanic. He's so feeble, he can't leave the room. 
shivers with cold constantly. They pile, family piles covers on him and they can't keep him warm. He was weak. And all of his family problems followed him to his deathbed. And son tries to usurp him even in his last breaths. In his heyday, though, he's the king who'd made plans to build a great temple. God has to tell him, no, David, you're not going to do that. You're too much blood on your hands. And besides all that, I don't live in a house. And so it's left for his son. And yet in spite of the prophecy, the house of David, after he dies, it ends up collapsing just as David's life had done. The children of Israel, the kingdoms divided, they get carried off into exile. Psalm 137 laments it this way. We, we sat down by the waters of Babylon, and there we wept. Hmm. And I think it's no coincidence this promise of an everlasting throne was given by God to a man who had even less control over his household than, a, than Clark Griswold. <laughs> and yet with all that, God still remembered. He preserved it. It was preserved. It was believed. It was the hope of a nation. And even after all these years, the prophecy hadn't been thrown out. It had been told. It had been retold. The promises of an, of an eternal kingdom. And yet up to this point, there had been no progress. No celebrations. If it wasn't the Assyrians, it was the Babylonians. And it wasn't the Babylonians anymore. At this time, it was the Romans. Nothing had changed. Yet, people were still clinging to that hope. See, I don't know. Christmas is one of those times that I think this scene, this moment gets relived at some point in our life. Christmas brings up all the, all the hopes and the expectations, all the things that, that we wish were a certain way that we have, we've, we come to the end and find out we haven't been able to control them, we haven't been able to manufacture them, we haven't been able to make everything turn out the way we've always wanted it to. And maybe this Christmas is one of those Christmases for you. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a virgin named Mary. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, David's descendant upon David's throne, ruling over Jacob's people forever. Well, if you're reading the story, you can't wait to see how Mary's going to respond to it, right? Well, she responds. I, I think in verse 29, it's, it's fascinating. But, but she's greatly troubled at the saying. She's trying to discern what it would mean. 
There's two kinds of doubt. Doubt that's the sign of a closed mind. And I think there's doubt that's the sign of an open mind. That the kind of doubt that actually wants answers. The kind that, that shows, listen, I'm, I'm open to truth. I, I'm willing to, to get out of the driver's seat of my life. I, the, those are healthy inquiries. And that's what she says. Of all the things she could have said, I think the thing that most troubled her was, how can this be in verse 34? I'm a virgin. I'm in the eighth grade. Well, it's a good question. Gabriel's going to go on to answer it, but he's going to answer it in a way that is more mystery than it is science. See, this is something God's doing. It will be the result of his powerful presence. The the, the supernatural works of God do not come with natural explanations. There's no details, no precise explanation of how sometimes God, he draws this veil of mystery over his work. And we're to be content with that. The story that heard a preacher tell the story of a newly ordained preacher and his, and his young wife. And at, their, at his ordination, they, they made these vows to be more considerate of each other. And then she promised not to be so critical of his sleep-inducing sermons. And he promised, of all things, to respect her privacy by not looking through her dresser drawers. That's what they did. So they're true to their words. Marriage goes smoothly. Fifty years later, their children uh, put, put on a big celebration for, for 50 years of marriage, 50 years of ministry. Uh, they, they, they throw a huge party. They, they get a lot of uh, uh, gifts, and, and he's going to the, the, the preacher's going to put all the gifts away into the room, and he realizes his wife left one of the dresser drawers slightly open. And try as he could, he couldn't resist. He opens the dresser drawer, and he looks in, and here's what he finds. He finds three eggs and $10,000 in cash. (laughs) He's totally puzzled by it. Asks his wife, she says, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you remember all those years ago when we promised to be more considerate of each other. And I promised you I was going to stop criticizing your sermons, your boring sermons. So she said, instead, of, instead, every time you preached a real snoozer, I put an egg into that drawer. So the preacher's kind of pleased, 50 years of sermons, only three eggs. She said, well, what about the money? She said, oh, oh, well, every time I got a dozen eggs, I sold them. (laughs) Some things are better not known, right? And God puts us in that position. One writer said there are no intricate details about this virgin conception of Jesus. It's rather typical. With the living God, we often meet conundrums 
the mystery of Jesus' conception, the mystery of the cross, the mystery of the Christian experience, the perplexity of unanswered prayers, the quandaries behind our suffering. Some of God's mysteries may be intentional. It may be that he does not want to feed our curiosity but lead us to worship. It's not that he wants you to be ignorant of things. But he wants you to be content that he is competent. He may not want you to speculate. He may be inviting you to adore. So the angel announces the annunciation. This new thing, the angel and, and the virgin, uh, the virgin their, their story tells us that God is about to enter the world directly in the person of his son, begotten by the holy power of the Holy Spirit, the same power that brought creation forth out of nothing. And it leads me to say, there are people I know, I know them, you know them. Maybe some of you are them. The thing, you know, with the virgin birth, I don't know, it's not that big a deal anymore. I mean, 2,000 years ago, how can we really know what happened? It just becomes uh, uh, an obstacle to Christianity anyways. It's something we know scholarship and academia have ridiculed. In every generation. But I'll tell you, so for 2,000 years, the church, the true church anyway, has said otherwise. The Nicene Creed from the 4th century, I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary. Charles Wesley, centuries later, hark the herald angels Sing, you come to the second verse, Christ, the everlasting Lord, late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail, incarnate deity. I could go on and on. 2,000 years. So we're not talking about a human birth here. We're talking about something that God has done. We're talking about one who was born as no one else was born, born as fully human. Absolutely. Begotten directly from the power of God. See, it's beyond the capacity of human parents despite whatever you think, human parents, to produce a child who is God. To produce a child worthy of worship. 
humankind. We cannot bring forth a Jesus any more than we can bring forth true and lasting peace. Only God can do that. Only God will do it. Mary, in this story, she is just as helpless as Joseph to make it happen. Human possibility is overcome by the irresistible power of God. doesn't have the answer either. <laughs> so where's the everlasting kingdom come from? Where's it come from? Not from us. God moves. Gabriel, Gabriel comes and crashes into the story. Heavens come to earth. The Lord will give his throne to his son. The Word made flesh dwells among us. Emmanuel, God with us. That's the meaning of the virgin birth. God's moved. All the things we can't control. All the things we can't make right. All the things we know are wrong. And are powerless to do anything about you know those things. The things that are the most real and most important in our life. What do we do? Well, the answer of the Bible is that God has moved. You know, the book of Ecclesiastes right there in the middle of the Old Testament. It's an important book. And Solomon laments, there's nothing new under the sun, nothing changes, nothing new, nothing moves. Human history, it's the same over and over and over. Rebellion and violence and shame and death and over and over. And left to ourselves, our Christmas dinners would be a disaster every time, but we're not left to ourselves. Something has changed, something has Moved. It's not human beings that have moved it. It's God that's moved. The powerful angelic message has arrived. We are not abandoned. The power that created the universe with a word and could equally destroy it with a word. That God is not against us. He's for us. God's moved. And Gabriel comes crashing into history in the middle of a teenage girl's unremarkable life to announce it. Because the son that is to be born, the one on whose shoulders the governments will rest, the one who will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The one who will raise your parents and grandparents from the dead. 
your children and your grandchildren. And I don't know why it takes so long. I don't know why it comes with so much pain, but I know that when we are speaking this morning about our hopes and our dreams and our desires, they aren't hopes and dreams and desires that we can ever accomplish or fulfill on our own. What's happening at this first Christmas, it's not from man, it's from God. That's what the announcement declares. That's what the virgin birth signals. So, how do we respond? Think Mary helps us in verse 38. She said, behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And I think she had a glimpse of all that it would cost her for that to be. And then the angel departed from her. Old Augustine, he said, Mary's more blessed in receiving the faith of Christ than in conceiving the flesh of Christ. Her nearness as a mother would have been no profit to Mary had she not borne Christ in her heart after a much more blessed manner than the flesh. Giving birth to Jesus was not the greatest moment of Mary's life, the greatest moment of Mary's life was receiving Jesus as her Savior. If Christ is in us, and we're God's children, then Mary's model is for us. It's the model of cultivating a humble heart, a heart that says, I'm I'm yours. God, I serve you. It's a humble-hearted, is a reflective nature. Meditates on God's promises. It is a mind and a soul that believes that the weight of all your hope is on him. That you would submit yourself. I am the Lord's. It's easy to think we've got it all under control. And all it takes is a moment for things to unravel. This Christmas, it's a great reminder. It's not up to us to fix. The things most important, the things most real. We live between the already and the not yet, and we hope for the return of our Savior, believing He's the answer to all. Where are you this morning?
I'd hate for you to, for Christmas to come and go again in 2021 and you not having given real consideration to where the hope of your life lies. This morning, you can settle that. If you would, would you bow with me? Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would do what only you can do. That we can't move closer to you. But Father, you can move. You have moved towards us. I pray you would open our eyes. Open our hearts. I pray you'd grant us humility. Father, I pray that, that we'd have faith to take hold of what you've given. Father, I pray that we would be a people who believe. Father, for some this morning, maybe the first time to really believe. To say, you know what? Okay. It's not science, it's mystery. It's not mythology. It's truth. And Father, by faith, reach out and take hold. Father, I, I ask that you would draw us all for the first time or all over again to the beauty and the glory and the hope of your son, Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray the only way we can. And in the power of your spirit, amen.